Welcome to the podcast for bravetestimony.com. Hi, and welcome to the bravetestimony.com podcast. If you're just joining us and this is the first time you've joined one of our podcasts, which would be the second podcast, so it'll be pretty refreshing. Welcome anyway. The goal in these podcasts is to kind of elaborate a little bit more about what we've been teaching about in group, what group's really about, uh, you know, really dealing with topics around wholehearted masculinity, wholehearted manhood, what does it mean to be wholehearted, and what do we really need inside of our hearts? And so this is a, a sort of a open discussion. I have with me today my friend Doug Boyd, who you can see over there on the screen. Doug Boyd is an ex-family therapist. You're an ex-therapist. That's a nice, strange way of making your name, ex-therapist. So, yeah, so retired. he's retired therapist, right? Yeah. And, Doug helps me with, uh, as some of you know uh, who have come to group, Doug helps me with um, the group that we do, the bravetestimony.com group. Um, and he is a great friend and a great, uh, how would I put this? I, you're a great sort of, um, you know, I, I would say you're a great opposition, but it seems like too much of a strong word. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah. Doug is a great way, it's a great person for bouncing stuff off of and really making me think and hear myself think. And, and so I really appreciate Doug for how he's helped me as to, uh, sort of become better, become more articulate for sure. Uh, so welcome. Thank you. Good yeah. to join you. Yeah. This should be fun. Yeah, I think it'll be fun. I'm going to open, uh, tonight we're going to talk about um, specifically, you know, belonging as a, as a fundamental concept, but in the greater the greater picture is why do men join bravetestimony.com? What's in it for them? Like why, why is there such a drive to come to community and why do we do community the way we do community? And so this will give you a bit of an insight of what's happening in our groups and how, um, and, and how that's meeting a need in men. So I'm going to open it up with a quote uh, by Tony Stoltzfus. Stoltzfus? I think it's Stoltzfus. Uh, Tony, I'm sorry if I missed your name up, but this is a quote from him. He's currently uh, part of the Bethel Reading fire stuff. So Tony, Tony and a bunch of people have lost their homes. Very sad. Uh, the car fire. And, and he's reflecting on Facebook a little bit. And this is what he said. He said, when we are in pain, we have a deep desire to be seen and known. We want to know that our lives are valuable enough and our pain is important enough for people to pay attention. We don't want our solutions or, we don't, sorry, we don't want your solutions or your scriptures so much as we want you to know, we want to know that you know and that we matter to you. That's why we're telling our story when we're hurting and we're having others listen is so valuable. Even if we have no word, even if you have no words to give, uh, give someone who's in pain, and that'll ease their pain. Your willingness to simply be there, be there for somebody, fills that deep desire to be known. That's more valuable than any words or advice you can offer. We think of that, Doug. Yeah, love it. It's the uh, the gift of presence, really, because when you're in pain, even you can't, though somebody can't take that pain away from you, to be connected to somebody, to not be alone in the midst of the pain. Right. Um, validates person's experience, uh, demonstrates somebody cares about them, cares about what they're going through. Right. It's uh, the aloneness on top of it. Right. Is, is uh, the double, double-edged sword that way. If you're I, alone and in pain, that's even more painful. 
Right. I think it's probably, you know, I, I would say it's one of the zeitgeists of our time in the sense that we, we're running into this thing all the time. I run into it probably on a regular basis where people believe the lie that they're alone because of, it's been reinforced. It's not like it's a lie that hasn't had some reinforcement. Um, you know, I, I think of people that are going through struggle and often feel alone by the behavior of other people. Um, and ultimately, there's this deep lack of, of love and belonging in society that people are constantly trying to fill with other things. Right. Um, I spent some time Googling this afternoon, looking up the, uh, uh, trying to find a book from years ago. I think it was called The Lonely American Male. Okay. I couldn't find that one, but I found page after page after page of books and articles and uh, things from different psychology magazines all about how American males are literally dying of loneliness and the damage right. that it does to the American psyche. Um, and it's just a, an epidemic, certainly in our country and in, in America. Right. That, uh, we, have been, we have been trained to be alone. Okay. We're supposed to be okay in our pain. We're not supposed to show any pain. It's like somehow uh, it's noble to be alone. Like somehow you're a maverick and there's something kind of romantic about being alone, right? I guess for some people, it doesn't seem to appeal to me. <laughs> well, just the, the ideal of this lone ranger, somebody that can be a hero unto themselves and have no real right. accountability. And there's something kind of like masculine, macho about being alone and being able to handle it on your own. Right, the whole Superman kind of thing. Right. Nothing can hold me, nothing can stop me. Right. I'll just forge ahead in spite of whatever the odds are until I finally win whatever it is that I'm going after. Right, and how's that working out for you, right? That's sort of well, theory. Superman kryptonite, right? So. <laughs> so I just want to yeah. speak a little bit about childhood development and the content, the, the, the sort of the, the idea that there's like, at, from zero to two, we have this innate sense of belonging because from zero to two, we actually believe we really are our mother. And we're not, we believe we're inseparable from our mother. We're the same person. I think in some of your psychology studies back in the day, you probably learned that with Carl Jung talks about, is it Carl Jung? Jung? I was Jung yeah. yeah. So Jung talks about this, this idea that belonging, separation doesn't, or separation anxiety or being you know, disconnected from group doesn't really happen until after two. And that's when we see independence start to show up and the child starts saying no. It's one of the most favorite times right. for parents <laughs> when separation yeah. shows up. That and teenagers, right? It's another right. part of the cycle where right. individualism just blossoms like crazy. Right. And they move away from the primary figures of the parents to the, the social group. Correct. And the fact, need to belong even with your peers more than ever. Right. Um, and the, the need for inclusion, the need to be popular. They need right. to have 4,000 hits on your Facebook page. Right. And isn't that exasperated today with all the likes that we're going after and all the sort of the blips of belonging that aren't real belonging. It's like a fake belonging on the internet, like the social value of friendship on the internet has really kind of diluted the value of intimacy. Well, it's a false intimacy because you can post anything you want on Facebook. Right. And so anything you want on there doesn't even have to be true. Right. Um, but supposedly you gain some kind of attention by having so many hits on your on your website or on your, on your Facebook page. So, well, let's talk about um, that for just a minute. The, the, the likes actually do something emotionally. They actually fire endorphins in you. There is actually a real response 
I mean, I don't know how, how popular people have been on the internet in the past. I've had moments where I've surged and been down, but there's a real sort of like, like somehow a like is kind of, and I don't want to be too crude, but it's a little bit like, um, you know, having sex alone because you, you're not really intimate with anybody, but there feels like you have value because somebody said something good about you on the internet. Of course, the opposite is true too. And that is that you can lose your entire value in, a, in one single to, uh, you know, Twitter, Twitter account, somebody tweets something about you and suddenly your whole world comes crashing down. Yeah. Yeah. So, because it's all artificial in the first place. Right. So it doesn't really build substance to the person. Right. So right. We're, not, we're not really saying anything new. It's just, we're trying to, we're trying to identify that there is this kind of like desire somehow inside of us to feel liked without any consequences of really being intimate. This, this kind of thing, like I want a kudos, but I'm not really sure. Like I'm okay with, like somehow we substitute in a real being known, which we'll get into in a bit here, with this idea that somebody affirms me. Like affirmation uh, is a weak form of really truly being known. Well, and it's also artificial in that it's, the affirmation is about what you do or what you have or how you look right. rather than who you are as a person. Right. To be popular as long as you wear the right clothes or the right, have the right, whatever, brand right. name, whatever. Right. So it's about what you can acquire or right. what you accomplish rather than just being loved for who you are as a human being. Right. So let's get back to just Charlotte for just a second. So we have this double sort of toddler to stages, you know, 12 year old and two year old, they're kind of acting the same. And there is two sets of belonging. There's the belonging to the parent unit, the belonging to the, to the friend or peer unit. Um, but I find that a lot of men, when we deal with this issue, maybe they missed a section in their childhood where they didn't industrialize and they didn't become independent and they didn't actually learn how to belong in a group as a sovereign human being, they, they, their identity came from group. And we have sort of identity politics happening in our, in our day and age where your, you know, your worst condition, if you can identify with somebody else with the worst condition, and then you represent that group somehow, and now suddenly you have some belonging, but it's, it's not a real belonging. It's kind of this fake kindergarten slash high school slash, there's this idea that there would be, you know, I have belonging because I have pain as opposed to I have belonging because I'm no one. And instead of uh, the, real, the real thing, which we're going to talk about in a minute, is why men's group actually works, is, you know, instead of the real thing, we have this fake belonging because we identify and we can connect with somebody's pain as a point of connection, but it really doesn't answer the question of why we're in pain or even elevate the person up to a point where they can actually take authority over that pain in their lives. So people get stuck in their pain because now the group identifies, the tribe identifies with the pain. They, so their identity becomes their pain. Or their problem becomes their pain. Not even that. Right. It becomes their identity. I, my name's Doug and I'm a... Yeah, that's what I, I mean. I call myself by my problem. Right. And we're all, we're all cluster around the idea that we all have the same problem, therefore we belong, therefore we're the same. All of that, rather than, hi, right. my name's Doug, and I'm a human being who owns a problem. Right. I guess that's what I was trying to say. I think a lot of uh, men's groups, in, in juxtaposition to what I'm about to share about why we do men's group, a lot of groups about addiction, a lot of groups about, you know, diet, 
and they, they, they have this common thing, which is really the brokenness that they're coming together over, and, and which is a good thing, because you want to be able to come together and get help. But there is a tendency to kind of stay in that place, and once an addict, always an addict, because now that has become my identity. Is that yeah. fair? Yeah, that's, that's the point, yeah. Right. Uh, Go ahead. Oh, I'm fine. <laughs> <laughs> so I want to sort of uh, jump, jump out into a different place. One of the problems with, in the childhood development process is during the independent stage, it's actually a very critical stage for a child because the child has to actually separate himself in a healthy way from his parents. And his parents have to celebrate separation as a, as a value, not as a, as a challenge. A lot of parents will take the two-year-old stage and want to micromanage every part of the process because that way they, 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 they can ease their conscience about allowing the kids to, to feel separated. And somehow there's, and then there's some codependency that creeps in and some fear of rejection and everything. But so let's, let's pretend that the hierarchy works well. You have a good love and belonging at zero to two years old. Now you're connected to your mom and you feel connected. And then you start to feel these, wait a minute, I can make decisions independent of my mom. I think it's critical and, and often missed by parents is to give them really good choices at that age. And some of us didn't have really good choices at that age. And so as a result, we don't know how to be independent of the group or of a, a person. And yet there's this lack of, like somehow we need to celebrate the individual and the sovereignty of the individual and the individual's value in a group. I don't know how we do that. Do you, other than what we're going to talk about in the value of men's group, but do you see that as a problem in, in society right now, the way I do? Obviously I do because I, I just said it out loud, but. Do you want to try that again? <laughs> Say it one yeah. more time. <laughs> So there's this idea that, you know, if somebody's lacking from zero to two in their love and belonging, that's a brick that's missing. And so right. that manifests in this complete emptiness and this desire to compromise your core values to be part of a group. So you'll do, let's say the group is, you know, whatever your, you know, post-millennial sort of, <laughs> oh, that was, Sorry. that's okay, we'll cut that out. <laughs> or not and make it interesting for the viewer. Uh, but if your post-millennial mindset is, you know, identify, you know, with whatever your political agenda is, maybe left or right. And so now if the group makes a decision you don't like and you have a low self-esteem and you have a low value for self, you tend to then just go with whatever the group is. And then, so you're selling yourself off. Right. yourself off in order to blend in with the popular. Right. There's a disconnect from your own core values and you adopt the group core values because the group is the missing part in your life. Well, I don't think many kids are taught to think about what their core values are in the first place. <laughs> no, no, clearly, but I'm talking about as an adult now. If we miss something as a child, as an adult, we tend to compensate for that and try to reclaim missing parts of our childhood. And I would argue that I see that in a lot of men where we're, try, we're basically grown-up kids. We're, we're like boys in men's bodies trying to live a childhood dream but we're not the point is if we can find a way to fix or to adjust what's missing inside of us and and get back to real love and belonging we actually compensate for the disconnect uh, you hear a phone ringing in the background somewhere so so number one i ask you do you see this which you see is more of a problem th that 
men are lacking a love and belonging issue or they're lacking independence or sort of an identity of sovereignty where they, because I actually see the opposite too. I do see that men who are uh, filled with this independent sovereignty or gave, given way too many choices tend to overcompensate by being independent, independent of group and what you, you right. think is a greater issue? I've been trying to think of those two things in terms of the topics of love and power and sort of the stereotypical thing is more women are more connected to the need for love, men are more connected to the need for power. Okay. We do relationship well, we have to excel in a powerful way somehow by being okay. number one, by excelling in sports, by being the best salesman, whatever. So it perpetuates the idea that we are valued for what we do, what we can accomplish, rather than for who we are as people. Right. So, because there's, if we go back, you know, to look at the Bible for a minute, the first lie was there's something wrong with you. Right. Correct. And so when we miss something along the way, there is this automatic assumption in our world that there's something wrong with us. Right. So in order to not be something wrong with us, I don't have to be wrong if I fit in, blend in, sound like, look like. Right. I'm the right whatever that's supposed to be good in our society. So we buy into that whole performance kind of thing so easily. We buy into people pleasing so easily. We buy into the need for um, for independence at the cost of our, our mutual need for relationship. Right. right. Because we were we were created for relationship. We were created for community. Right. But then because we believe there's something wrong with us, then we set up all these hurdles that we have to have or do or be or look in order to be okay. And that's actually debilitating for a lot of folks. They actually shut down. Yeah. Well, I mean, even the fact that in the seventies there's a popular psych book called I'm okay, you're okay. Right. Which the world just suggests no, we're not. <laughs> we yeah. all believe we're not, but let's try and get to be okay after all. Right. And, and so we grow up believing that somewhere, somehow, I'm not okay. Especially right. if I didn't get the love I needed, especially if I was disciplined for um, trying out my independence, and parents see it as being rebellion instead of being independent. Right, which I was talking about earlier, where parents try to control yeah. individualization rather than actually celebrate it. Right. Yeah. So the so the um, you know I was thinking when you were talking before about I remember counseling this parent who was all upset because their two year old wasn't being respectful when they said no. Wow, <laughs> it's yeah. like you want the kid to say no. Right. <laughs> what are you doing? Yeah. Right? So I heard my one friend once say he heard this other guy they were talking about kids. He said sometimes we celebrate in in adults what we discipline on children. So the yeah. very thing we see in a child that we that we're disciplining is the actual thing we want them to be strong at when they're adults, but we don't really know how to reconcile the two things. Right. But that, that blends in with the whole codependency thing because right. I need you to be okay so I can be okay. Right. But I need my child to be well-behaved and mannerly so that I know I'm okay. Right. Right. So if, if I don't know that I'm okay as a parent and my kid acts up, right. Well, that's a reflection to me somehow, and I need to feel better, so I have to discipline the kid because right. I don't want to be rebelled against or somehow I'm being disrespected. Correct. So we take our image from what's going on around us rather than 
knowing who we are in Christ in the first place. Right. So let's do, let's just take a second. I'm going to do a little quick test with everybody who's listening and watching. Uh, this is a self test. So you can think about this uh, for yourself uh, and then analyze yourself where you're at. Uh, but, and I'm going to see if I can get it right. Cause it's quite, it's like three stages. So uh, I'll start with this. Uh, men that, oh, well, people, we, we mostly deal with men. So that's really what we're talking about. But if you've had a very controlling parent uh, result, the result of that is usually uh, kids that can't be independent. They actually can't, they end up as codependent in the sense that they can't make decisions on their own because they're always looking for someone to tell them what to do. So if that's you, then you can kind of, you can think back to your childhood and go, was well, like in, in, you know, without getting, this is a public forum, but uh, I can remember times in my life where it was really hard for me to make good decisions because my dad, when we first grew up, was, it, was, it was a bit tough with my dad. He's a great man. He's got, I mean, he's going to listen to this. So, hey, dad, shout out. But I know he struggled. He knows he struggled. And honestly, in the beginning, we didn't really know how to, to operate independently. And so the, the result is either you rebel or you feel frozen when it comes to making difficult choices. The opposite is true, too. If you have an absent parent, you tend to be super independent. And so, you know, children at a very young age, if they, the parents are absent in the sense of, my, especially dads and men, if the dad's hardly there, doesn't make any decisions, doesn't connect with you, the, ten, the tendency to take care of your own needs becomes way higher than a child that all these needs taken care of and he can't make any choices. So as a result, as an adult, you tend to make decisions for yourself before somebody else can make them for you because you don't really trust the environment to help you with your stuff. Of course, the healthy thing would be if you have a, a parent that is has an interdependency in the sense of, you know, I, I value, you value me, and we're going to make decisions together, but you are responsible in your own sovereignty to make your own choices. I'm responsible for me. I mean, it's obviously, we're talking ideals now. Not many people had a relationship like that with their parents. And so well, then, you, then you get a healthy adult that's, that can independently know when it's time to ask for help and when it's time to man up and make a good decision. So just whoever's listening, just assess your life role just real quick and just realize that, that something you're doing is probably connected with that some of the way i didn't really mean to go into that but that is a moment where you can self-assess so doug let's talk a little bit about sort of the uh how how men's group can help this massive sort of missing piece of love and belonging and specifically the value of what it, not only the value but what does a good community look like a good a good group look like when we're doing it right so let's start, I'm sure you've had some thoughts about this. So why, how can we help as a group? Well, I think we help as a group by in being intentional about, if you will, forcing people to speak, first of all. Right. But we, we focus in on how is this person doing? What's right. going on in the world? How are they and how did they feel? Most men need to learn to recognize feelings. Most of us need to learn how to talk about our feelings. It's not just a XY chromosome deficiency thing. It's a, it's a. Well, wait a, wait a second though. We would tell the feelings didn't matter. Right. Yeah. So, but actually the more we ignore our feelings, the more power we give to them. And feelings are the part of our lives that drive us to do whatever it is that we do. Correct. We think we're nice and rational, but we're not. We're really, really feeling more, uh, 
motivated more than we think we are. Right. But because we don't often pay too much attention to what we're really feeling. Guys end up feeling numb or they become angry. Right. The guy is angry all the time. That's someone who's not recognized his natural feelings day in, day out, and ignored how he's really doing physically. And so, I, I would argue a little bit about the feelings for a minute. Like, I think, you know, we've done teaching on feelings and needs, which, I, and for those of you that, that haven't really followed along with us for that long, I will say this comes from Danny Silk's teaching and a lot of uh, family therapists teaching, uh, especially, you know, um, your social welfare. Uh, education where they talk about the idea to communicate well you want to stay out of things like um cliches which is a low form low intimacy form uh facts um opinions opinions is the worst place to negotiate by the way because there's no there's no way to prove right or wrong there and and facts doesn't facts doesn't really require you to be intimate at all because you don't have to like you don't risk anything by sharing a fact uh you risk by sharing an opinion but it's really your opinion and there's no way to prove it right or wrong um and so then you get into like opinion fighting and tribalism and all the crazy things that our world is full of. But really where the intimacy starts is when you start to share your real feelings. And, and, I, and so we've taught this feelings and needs are the next level. And we've taught feelings and needs as being this holy grail, which is what, what Doug is talking about, of really getting down to what's going on inside. And we use uh, one-liners like, your feelings matter, your feelings are never wrong. Uh, but I think we disconnect the idea that feelings are an indicator of something that's going on on the inside. So instead of, I don't want to, I want feelings to come across as this ideal that somehow I'm justified in behaving the way I am because I feel a certain way. Like I'm angry, therefore I punched you. It's not a, a it's not a, uh, it's not a valid reason for punching someone. I mean, it's valid. It's valid in the sense that you felt it, right? But it's, it's not a the cause and effect thing isn't how we're going to solve the problem. We need to know why we feel those things. Is that a fair? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I think it is fair because like I said, the more we ignore them, the more they drive us. Right. And so most of us have never learned how to address a feeling directly. To right. Think about what's this feeling about? Where is it coming from? What does this remind me of? Why am I, why am I feeling this? What is going on? And what can I do to manage that directly? So tell us what a feeling really is. Go back to that. Because I, I don't know. I, I guess we jumped into this without, I didn't realize we were going to go here. But some people may not know what a feeling is because we think we know what feelings are. We say weird things like, I feel like this or like that. Or I, mean, I hear a lot of teenagers going, I feel like, and it's really just a thought. So go ahead and right. give us the definition of a feeling. So my understanding of a feeling is it's my physiological body's response to what I'm thinking. Okay. So it happens in the flesh part of who I am. It's, it's this stuff is what I feel with. Right. Depending on what I think, I will change my body chemistry. I'll change my blood pressure. I'll change my mood. And you can't control it. It's automatic. It's, it's automatic. But what I can control is what I do with it when I recognize exactly. it. And let me just speak clear for those people that don't know where feelings come from. You have this ambigula in the back of your head that is constantly living to protect you from the chaos around you. And it's learning from all the chaos you went through not to do that again, like don't touch the stove. And so we go through this all the time. So when something happens, you immediately feel something. It's usually coming from there. And sometimes it can be very helpful. Don't touch the stove is helpful. But sometimes it's based on a pain or something that's not actually real 
And yet we still emotionally react as if it's a real threat, fight or flight. So we're not talking about cognitive thought process, which happens up front, where you get to make a choice about your behavior. This is behavior that, that manifests emotionally from inside you. We call that ambiguous hijacking in therapy. But, but let's go back to what feelings. What are the tests for whether it's a feeling or not, Doug? Okay, so I have some tests that I use, which are things like when I hear somebody who's authentically talking a feeling, it's something that goes on in my body so I can point to it. When I'm angry, it happens in right. here. Right. When I'm happy, it happens in my lips. When I'm stressed, I feel it in my forehead. Um, so it's got to have a physical response to it. A true feeling does not follow, I feel like, or I feel that. As soon right. as I hear somebody say those two things, I'm going to get an idea or an opinion disguised right. in human language. And, and, we, uh, and we're faking intimacy when we do that. We're like, right. we, we're disguising our opinion so that we can be justified in, in judging. Right, right. Another uh, clue is that I just lost it. <laughs> Right. Another clue are. is, yeah. Another clue is that uh, it a true feeling comes after I am. Okay. You can say I'm happy, I'm sad, I'm confused. You can't say in one word. Let's say the clue. Oh, feelings are only one word long. I'm happy, I'm sad, I'm confused. You cannot say. People will say things like, "I feel that you should go to the store." Yeah. We cannot say I am. You should go to the store. It doesn't make any sense. Right. So how about, how about things like how about things like I feel disconnected. Uh, when I I think that might be a feeling, uh, an idea. Sorry, that might be an idea. Right. When I believe I'm disconnected, maybe I feel lonely. When I think I'm disconnected, maybe I feel scared. Okay, maybe that's great. I feel anxious. Right. Because um, it's kind of an evaluative term. I look around and I go, hmm, I don't see anybody on my emotional horizon. Right. Therefore, I'm disconnected, so I feel depressed. Right. 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 So, and so again, the, I, I, I don't know how to physically do disconnected. How do you do that? How do you, yeah, like where's the sweat? Where's the, like the hairs on the back of your neck? These are the things right. that are feelings, really. Yeah. No, no yeah. I'm not discounting the fact that like, like I've heard people say this when they use the I am message, you know, like, or I feel sad that, and I need that. And so they use some facts in between. And, and, and the simple message is I feel, let's use the sad thing. I feel sad when, and then you insert a fact and whatever that fact yeah. might be. I, I feel sad uh, when you yell, because yelling is a yell. Just not, you can't judge yelling. Yelling is a fact. If, when someone's, oh, you use a simpler term. I feel sad when you raise your voice. And, and okay. I, don't, I don't want to feel sad when I'm around you. That's, that's an I am, I feel message. It's a similar kind of idea. But the idea is often I hear people say things like, I feel devalued or disconnected or disjointed. Those are judgments you're making about somebody's right. behavior. And I think, right. I think it, I don't want to get rid of the idea that we can talk like that. I just think that there's a higher level of intimacy when we look deeper on inside and not base our feelings or base our, our, our articulation of feelings on what we see, but more what we are feeling really in our body. Is that fair? Well, if the whole point is we want to know one another, I want to know, okay. be known, and I want to know somebody. Right. We have to know ourselves. 
all the psychobabble about what you've done. I don't care about all the yeah. circumstantial detail. Right. If I will go after somebody and so I don't care. What are you feeling? And they'll tell me an right. idea. And I say, I don't care. What are you feeling? Right. Right. And I was like, what are you about? What is going on for you right now? Because I want to know how you are and who you are. Right. I want to experience you, not just the way you interpret life, not just the way you think about things. I was listening to Brene Brown talk about it today, and she was, she was in the middle of a hurricane, and she said that her, her therapist friend called her and asked her how she's doing. And she goes, well, I'm doing pretty good. She's like, that's a lie. You, you say that to people who aren't intimate with you. Save that yeah. for the people that are not your friends. Your, right. your friend, your friend, and when it's, we'll, come, we'll circle back because we're going to come back to why men's group is valuable and what we do differently than, say, a support group or an addict group. But she's talking about, like, let's get real for a minute. Let's learn to complain properly. Complaining isn't the problem. Complaining is bad in the sense that if I complain and say, well, woe is me, the world is out to get me and everybody else is better than me, that is a victim complaining. But complaining and going, I feel sad right now. I feel, and people find, especially in Christian circles, we find it very hard to either, to do this well. We either do it in a victim way where we're really pointing the finger outside, or we do it in a way where God is good, he's on the throne, everything's fine. I know it's really difficult around, but it's all good, all good. All good is a lie. And I, I think it's, not, it's, a, it's really a way of us disconnecting our need for, for group and our distrust of the people in the group, distrust of God. Well, part of it may be some Christian cultures want everybody to be fine all the time. Well, that's a whole other issue for sure. It's all supposed to be happy and joyful, and Jesus is coming back again one day soon, so it's all good. But in the meantime, he did say we will have problems. In this world, you will have trouble. Yeah. And so when I'm in trouble, right. if I'm going to be known by somebody, I have to tell them how I am in the midst of trouble. Like if right. Brene Brown is in a hurricane, Right. I've not been in a hurricane, but I've been in a tornado. I didn't like it. <laughs> I was scared. <laughs> I, I didn't like it. I was, I was scared was better than I didn't like it. But yes, I didn't like it. <laughs> Getting a little more real. I was sort of yeah. terrified, <laughs> right? But as men, uh, we're told to man up and suck it up. We're told that all the time as kids. Like, right. oh, man up, walk it off, suck it up. It's like, okay. that's not we're even we know why. Go save the kitten out under the garbage can, right? Yeah. Put yourself at risk, and that'll prove you're really a man because you're doing dangerous stuff to yourself. But isn't it funny how men can do dangerous stuff to themselves, but they can't actually identify what they feel? That's way scarier. Or let, let alone feelings, what about needs? So I want to come back. I know we can do that forever, by the way, because I can talk about I – was, I was realizing we could get into the whole trust cycle and why men share and why they don't share, which we may touch on in a minute. But I guess I want to circle back to this thing that, that Tony was talking about, about being known. And, and we were kind of touching on it a little bit. I think, you know, the way why men's group is working for so many men and when it works well, I think I would like to touch a little bit on, on those things. And I, I, have, I do men's group for me first. I actually don't do it for anybody else. I know that sounds kind of crazy, but I don't come to men's group so I can start a ministry or be, you know, uh, somebody's daddy or I can't have any issues with those things. What I am doing it for is I long for and realize my need for being known. Like I understand that if I, if I live in an Island and I'm unto myself, in fact, the scripture talks about this very clearly in, uh, in the Psalms. I think it's Proverbs actually it says, 
A man who isolates himself and seeks his own desire rages against sound wisdom. And you're like, whoa, wait a second. So the, the antidote to not being known or, the, or the, the fight or flight response is to isolate. So that tells me that the good side of it is to run towards intimacy. And I'll quote Mark Peterson as saying, he says, you know, the relationships got us into this mess and relationships will heal us. Somehow we have to learn to rebuild this relationship dynamic and specifically in the idea of being known. It's Doug, how do you think talking about our feelings and needs is helping us be known? Well, as soon as you talk about feelings and needs, you're talking about how you are. Uh, as, as opposed to what? What What's going on in your world. Right. How the baseball team is doing, what right. it's like at work. I don't want to know about your work. I want to know about how you are. Right. Right. I want to know, because it's the people who are important. Right. I think all the projects are important. The work is important, all of that kind of stuff. Right. But in the bottom line, it's how you are. Because we're, we're basically in the business of trying to grow up as men. Come on. We're trying to grow up good, strong, healthy, mature, wise, successful men, whatever that successful men and, is. And not given to emotional whims. Like we want to be able to be self-controlled. And we can't be self-controlled if we don't know what we're actually feeling. Right. Well, how can you control something you're not aware of? Right. And that you don't know what need is triggering it. Well, what happens then is you react to it rather than respond to it. Correct. Right. So I get to, if I respond, I'm planning something, I'm doing something right. effective about it rather than I'm being powerful and free. There you go. Right. So, so if you're out there and you're listening to this right now, and again, I don't know who's going to, I mean, you know, there's posterity, who knows this could last forever on the internet. I love the internet for that, but I would self analyze for a minute how well aware you are of yourself. The first part about being known is known, being known to yourself. And, and how well are you articulating your feelings and your needs in the shortest amount of time possible? Can you do it? The test is, can you do it when somebody asks you at the grocery aisle? Like if the clerk says, how are you doing? Cause they don't really care actually. It's, it's but it's a great experiment to, to answer. Well, I feel angry. I feel lonely. I feel tired. I feel stressed. Uh, these things are happening in my life and they're affecting my sleep. And the, the, the clerk's, of course, going to respond really badly. I mean, unless they're, you know, very emotionally aware or self-aware. But the, this is an opportunity for you. If you can do it in the space of a, an aisle, then you're pretty self-aware. Then you're at the point where I would say you are known to yourself. Now the question is, can you do that with others? And then that becomes it, a trust issue. It doesn't have to be really profound either. No. Well, just listening to you, I'm going, I'm thirsty. <laughs> yeah. I should do something about that. I'm strong, independent, free. I can get a drink of water. Oh, look. Good, good job, Doug. Taking care of your needs. It's important. There you go. But I, I, if we don't even stop and think about it, mm -hmm. if we're not paying attention to ourselves, right. we'll carry stuff for weeks and months and years. So, so let, me, let, me, let me adjust. Let me make a little pivot and then we'll come back because I want to talk about needs because I just realized we're doing that because you talked about water. And so I, I will say that what I've learned from, from Danny Silk specifically and others like that is the idea that need awareness is one of the things we are probably the most, uh, de the biggest deficit in us is that we actually don't really know what we need. 
we're mad and angry and sad and lonely and happy and blah, 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 blah. But we don't actually know what's driving those emotions. And, and so when we, we run around with these feelings that we can't articulate, we actually make a, we create an incredible burden on the people around us to figure it out. It's, you know, we make a, like, let's use a, let's use a child, for example. This was in one of the books I read, but I think it was in Danny's Loving on Purpose thing. But, you know, there's, a three-year-old child who has a stinky diaper, or let's even use a younger child, they're just expressing their need the best way they can by crying. Like, and, and you as an adult, as a, the, the responsible environment, which you're responsible for a child, you can listen to that and then you have to deduce from the crying, the big noise, what is the problem? And I think that when we're immature and haven't grown up, we're still crying and we don't know what the need is. We're like, something is wrong. Ah, we're manifesting all these feelings, but not really articulating, I have a poopy diaper. I need my diaper to change, or I need my bum to stop hurting, whatever the issue might be. So I think there's something, and I go back to what you said earlier about being less profound. I think it's less profound than going, I need a Maslow's hierarchy of needs, and I, I understand it logically. It's not about that. No. No, it's not about that because it's about I'm being driven by what's going on in my body. Right. My physical reaction to whatever I'm assessing my world at. Right. If my judgments are off, I'm still going to feel it. Like, right. I'm going to have all the same reactions, whether what I'm believing is true or not. So one of the, my favorite things is when people are looking at porn, they'll have this, when men look at porn, the, they want to quelch the porn habit, and that's fine. That's admirable. But the, but the issue isn't the porn habit. The issue is they're, they're compensating for something, and they've got to figure out what that is. And that's probably one of the hardest things to identify because at first you think it's, well, I'm horny. Uh, okay, well, what if you had all the sex in the world? You'd probably still look at porn. So porn's not just about being horny. And in men's group, we're, we, that's one of the things we touched on. I'm actually thankful we have a porn problem because then we can actually look at what's really going on on the inside. It's an opportunity for us to go mining and figure out like, I mean, the, the stories people tell about why, when they get more mature and more in touch with their feelings and needs, they get, to, they get to articulate better what's really driving them to numb the pain. Yeah. Something Sorry, my, my phone is going off here. I That's thought okay. I tuned it off. That's okay. Sorry. Anyway, so I'll go back, I'll go back to needs for a minute. And I'll say this about, there's a need, need cycle. You know, we... When we are aware that we have a need, something goes on inside of us. A trigger happens. Boom. We, suddenly we become aware something's not right. That's a great place to be. The next stage is to go, I recognize that I have a need. Like most people don't know. They're just, in a big logic. The second part is to go, wait a minute, something's wrong. And then you go, oh, I need X. Then the third part is to go to the community, your environment, or to God or wherever you are, and say, I feel I need the community's response in that di diagram then would be to go, Ooh, we can or cannot meet that need. And God usually can meet, well, as we know, can meet all needs. So either God or the community or ourselves takes care of our need in a very healthy way. Let's pretend that all happens well. And we know that that does not happen well. And that's why we're going to say we'll pretend. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Let's pretend that the, in an ideal world, the community around you has the capacity and willingness to help you and you have the capacity and willingness to help yourself and God actually 
you know, for whatever reason, comes through in a miracle for your specific need. Now, you suddenly get comforted. Your knee gets taken care of. And guess what you're willing to do next time you have a need? Share your need. The problem, and then we call this the trust cycle. The opposite is true that when we express our need and it goes unmet, we call this the mistrust cycle because we lose comfort. And when we disconnect our comfort from our needs being met, we learn to become independent and take care of our needs. And that, that three-year-old child with the poopy diaper stops crying about the poopy diaper and lives with the pain. And they believe that the pain is their identity. Right. One, one caution about what you just said, though, is sure. it's so easy to say, I have a need, and I'm going to give you the responsibility to fix it for sure. me. Right. That that's, I, I see that all the time in relationships. Is I'm uncomfortable. You have to fix it. And if you don't fix it, then I keep upset with you. Right. And actually, one of the powers of men's group is we teach men self-sovereignty. So they learn that they actually have the right and responsibility to deal so with their own pain. Yeah. If it's my need, it's my responsibility to Absolutely. find a good solution to it. Absolutely. So I'm, we're going to have to end here pretty soon because we are pushing, yeah. I'm sure we're pushing YouTube's time. An hour. Yeah. yeah I'm, uh, we're not sure. We'll have to cut some. I'm not sure how it'll work. Uh, maybe I'll do it in multiple pieces or just do audio. But I will say this. To me, the power, let's just start with you. What is the actual power of men's group? When you, when you narrow down what, and I'm giving you time to think about it. When you narrow down, why do we even, why do you go to men's group, Doug? I go to men's group because I recognize more at this time of life than anything else that I have a need to be known and to have people around me that I care about and trust and respect. That I right. recognize I've spent a good portion of my life in isolation. Right. And, and I value the group because I'm finding out that as I'm more open about myself, more able to walk with other guys about who they are and how they are, I find a sense of community and belonging and um, a sense, a greater sense of okay being me. Right. I'm stronger. I'm more confident in myself. I am more content with who I am Wow! Uh, because I found people who are willing to walk with me, accept my journey and hold me accountable for being a better me. Right. Huh. That's a good, that, that pretty much answers the question. I, I was going to say that Mark Peterson always talks about the fact <laughs> that, late. yeah, I know we're out in Mark Peterson always says that we don't have a loneliness problem. We don't have a porn problem. We have a loneliness problem, which is a profound statement. Most of us are innately and profoundly lonely. And, yes. and most, of, most of the things we do that are abhorrent or whatever the case may be, or dysfunctional, can literally be solved by being known in a community. When you are completely, and this is what I, I just love this, I love bringing the worst and the best of me to a men's group or to a community and, and opening up about it and, and trying to sort of push the community into a place where they have to make a choice. And when you have a choice for, you know, rejection, like put myself out there enough that I'll be rejected if, if, people, if the community is unhealthy. And in a men's group, we have all these guidelines about healthy reactions. But a healthy environment which has unconditional love and acceptance, uh, when you really share your scariest thing, your, the stuff that's like down below, the things you're the most afraid of, the things you're the most excited about, and the community responds with, soft eyes, soft face, and they, they, they demonstrate love. There's this un, like, 
unbelievable endorphins run through your body. And I do it because it builds my value for myself and for my community. I don't like, I can't say how many times I've been on the stage and shared things and preached stuff, but there's, there's nothing quite like the thrill of being completely honest and being loved. And that's why I do men's group. So if you're listening, go ahead. You want to say one more thing or you good? No, okay. Sounds good. If you're, if you're listening to these podcasts and you're listening to them at work or whatever, and let's pretend you don't have a men's group at the very least start identifying your feelings as Doug said, right? Start identifying in your body, something that you're feeling. So, so I go, Oh, that's a feeling. Now then begin to ask yourself a question. Why do I feel that? What's, what's the need that's going missing? And then figure out where, if you can figure out why you're not trusting sharing that with other people, why you're withholding who you are and not telling people how you really feel and what you need. Um, that's a, that's a really crude beginning to start to look at how to be intimate. And I would again, and Doug sort of implied this earlier when he said it specifically about you are responsible for you. And that's number one. We'll always say that. And, and you know, you're going to have to set some boundaries about who you share stuff with, but find someone that's safe uh, that, that, that you can trust and begin to practice vulnerability by beginning to talk about you. Don't talk about anybody else. Just talk about you. You can say a fact about something like, I mean, you could, you could say you're angry about inflation. Inflation's a fact. Inflation's going up. I'm angry. Why am I angry? Well, I'm angry because I feel afraid. I'm afraid because I believe that I won't have enough. And there's a scarcity in me. And those are good things to learn about yourself because you can understand, wait a minute, what is the real truth here? And you can start to replace lies with truth. And we'll talk about that more in other podcasts. So be blessed. Uh, enjoy this podcast and other podcasts and subscribe below because there'll be a little subscription button in the whole YouTube thing. And we're trying to create an opportunity and a community for people to really talk about these things. So cheers. Thanks, guys.